Isaiah chapter 61, please. Isaiah chapter 61. I titled this, uh, What God Can Do. Um, and I hope you see why I titled it in a moment. Um, we're going to the book of Isaiah right now. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 4. Going to two quick passages this morning. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 4. Isaiah 61, verse 4. They shall build the old wastes. It's in the Old Testament, Leo. The book of Isaiah. Chapter 61 and verse 4. And they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. The promise is that somebody's going to come and rebuild what had been destroyed. Go back to chapter 58 now, Isaiah 58 and verse 12. Chapter 58 and verse 12, And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places, and they shall raise up the foundations of many generations that had fallen down, Thou, the builders, shall be called the repairer of the breach, or the hole in the wall, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Now, our study this entire year for 2018 is on building and rebuilding the things that sin and the devil has destroyed. There are two great historical books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, and these help us see beyond the rubble. I mean, we can see a lot of trouble. I, I look at I look at people's lives, I look at what sin does, I look at what rock music and what disco and what drugs have done, I look at what entertainment has done, talk about the Me Too crowd and, the, and the, um, uh, all of the groups that are uh, screaming at the top of their lungs all over Hollywood and all over the world. Let me tell you, it's sin that has ruined so many lives left people in rubble. And um, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah help us see that God's way can fix a lot of things. And we're switching from Nehemiah back one book to the book of Ezra this morning. And we'll actually switch back and forth throughout the year. Because I want to talk about our limited vision. Now this is a guy doing what's called blind yoga. Does that make sense? But I'm afraid this is where a lot of people are. They sort of just live in their own world, and they can't see what God can do. They only try to focus on their own power, and they focus on their own, own light within them. And believe me, there's no light in us. So just like this sort of duped guy, a lot of people are going through life never knowing what God can do with the rubble of our lives. <clears throat> We often see, and on the opposite, there are people who just give up because all they face are their constant limitations, the constant failures that seem to pile up. And so to them, why try? But this life, this planet, this time is seen so differently when it's seen from above. If you've ever seen these beautiful, uh, they take pictures and video from these drones that go up and, you know, you may be seeing 
the trees of a forest, but they take these drones with very high-powered cameras on there, and they go up there, and it becomes so beautiful. All you see is trees, but then when it gets up there, it looks down. It is breathtaking. And we forget that whatever you're looking at and whatever rubble of your life and your past, whatever it looks like from above, it can look a whole lot different. And what God can do, <clears throat> in my opinion, it's going to be my attempt this morning to open your eyes to what God has been doing all along through history. By the way, it is His story, not ours. History is about the hand of God in the lives of men. I want to help you start trust the same God that wrote Ezra and Nehemiah and get you to rest in His plan for your life. Because He knows what He's doing. No matter what twists and turns you may be going through and delays as a Christian, we, I, uh, I, came up, I came up to a conclusion this, this week. I said, you know what a Christian is? A Christian is not a moral person. He's not a theologian. A Christian is a passionate believer in the awesomeness of God. In, we just believe in the almighty abilities of our Creator who sustains this universe, went to the extreme to save wretches like us, and can fix everything that we've broken. That's what a Christian is. I don't stop when I get saved and say, okay, God, that's all I need you for. No, I need him for every breath from then on. So let's go, Lord, in prayer and ask him to help us sense again what God can do and trust his plan. Father, we look to you this morning with distracted hearts. Like Israel, we let politics, we let problems, and we let generations of, of, of uh, failure uh, fill our view. Lord, we need, to, we need to see you like, like you deserve to be seen in the pages of this book. Help us to listen to you and watch what you can do. I pray that we would yearn for you to do it again in us. Doesn't matter who we are, Lord, we need you. First, to save us from our sin, but secondly, to fix everything that sin has destroyed. And I know you can do it. We promise that you would. I pray that we would let you be the repairer of the breach today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now we're going to give some background to Ezra, and I'm going to take you through a timeline. So when you deal with Bible timelines in the Old Testament, you always count down. So the further back you go, the higher the number of years. So... Uh, if, if you'll, in your mind, get an idea of this little piece of property called what we call Israel. And um, uh, it actually was divided into two kingdoms after Solomon's son, Rehoboam, really blew it. And, and uh, uh, it, the northern half here is called, was properly called Israel, but the southern half became known as Judah. Now, this was where we're going to start, because going back to about 700 B.C., all of those northern tribes of Israel were conquered by a king named Sennacherib of Assyria. How many remember about Nineveh and Jonah going to preach? All right, Nineveh was the capital of a great empire called Assyria. And Nineveh marched through here, and again, this is the area of this little, little plot of land called Israel and Judah. And Nineveh came over there and just started to surround them and took away and defeated the northern ten tribes of Israel. 
Then about 70 years later, the Assyrians were conquered, as all empires are. They rise and they fall, and another nation takes over, and the, the empire of Babylon comes in, and they swing over, and guess where they, they attack? They surround Judah, and they, they surround that area, and they take over, and they conquer Egypt, and they take over what used to be known as Assyria. They conquer the, what they thought was the world. Then in 606, Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what, there's this little piece of property, and if you've ever seen a, a road where it comes to a tree, and they left the tree there, and then the road goes around the tree. All right, well, get the idea. In, in, in that land, in that land, let me go back here, there was a little spot that Babylon said, we got to go conquer them. They're right in our way. And he sent his troops in, and uh, the King Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the small nation of Judah. And in 588, well, he, he attacked it, and it took uh, 20 years almost, but Jerusalem finally falls. And the people were taken out, the ones who survived, were driven out and taken away captive as slaves back to Babylon while Jerusalem burned. <clears throat> and the land rested for 70 years. It was rubble. It was worthless. It was totally destroyed. But God said it was necessary. And he said, just rest for 70 years as a pile of rubble. Then, in 538, again, B.C., which means before Christ, a guy named Cyrus the Great takes the throne of Persia and almost instantly, as soon as he comes to power, he almost instantly declares, you, you Jews can go home. You're free. You can go back home. You can, you can rebuild your temple. And so this empire that's, that took over what was run by the Assyrians and then taken over by the Babylonians, now is taken over by the Persians. And that little prop, uh, piece of property called Judah or Judea is given its freedom. Again, a little sudden, nowhere else was that going on at the time. And here is a little piece of property. And that's where the book of Ezra picks up. Here, we're, we're, we watch the truth that God had to judge his people. Over and over and over, Judah had been warned from the very start, from Moses' day, and we don't have time to look at all the scriptures because they are very, they're very convicting. God would, uh, a thousand years earlier, would warn and say, don't go your own way, don't follow the nations around you, don't turn your back on me, or else... I'll have to judge. I'll have to chasten you. Because when the Lord loves, He chastens and corrects. And God had to judge His people. Over and over, He would send prophets from Samuel all the way through to Jeremiah. Hundreds of times, fearless men would stand in the center of towns and villages and would warn His people, God's people, to repent and turn back to the God of heaven. And almost all of those men were beaten, mocked, and killed. Now, the truth is, judgment was long, uh, long time coming. You know, uh, you remember when you were a kid, and that first thing you stole, you thought you were going to die. Your heart was beating a million. I, I don't know about you. Maybe you were Mr. Cool Cat. But I remember my friends convincing me to go into a shop. I must have been eight years old. Go into a shop and steal a pack of chewing gum. Yeah. I forget what they called me. He says, you're not such and such if you don't go do this. So I went in there, and I must have, I must have Niagara Falls sweating off of my palms. 
And I went in there and I just grabbed that thing and I put it in my pocket and I ran out. And I thought, I, I'm dead. God's going to strike me dead. That's what I thought. You know, God didn't. And sometimes we look and we go, you know, God's judgment doesn't, doesn't come right away like lightning. We go, oh, I guess God doesn't care. Oh, yes, he does. Judgment usually is a long time coming. And I'm glad for his patience because I should have been dead three or four times over before I got saved. As stupid as I was, racing as I was, flipping my car at 16 years old, racing with other friends, I should have died, and God was merciful. Amen? I mean, you start going, well, why isn't God judging this? And why isn't God intervening? Because God is merciful, and God's got patience, and if you just want God's judgment, you'd be doomed. So God's judgment is a long time coming. But believe me, He will judge sin. Don't you ever think that because God hadn't caught you yet, that He's not going to catch you in your sin. Captivity was God's judgment uh, against His own people. Think about it. Israel had turned away from God. They had turned from God to pieces of wood. They had stopped worshiping the God of heaven, and they worshiped stone, carved with men's hands. They worshiped idols. They, did, they, they turned from God to unimaginable sexual sins. They replaced God who had saved them from Egypt slavery with a God of pleasure, with the gods of fear, with the gods of magic and superstition. Israel became a nation of liars and thieves and adulterers that, that was from top to bottom. They would get married and then divorce their wives for almost no reason at all. So God judged them as guilty, and I am glad he did, because it shows that God will also judge us. See, if he left them off, he'd have to apologize to us too. That Oh, I don't want you to worry about your sin. You better worry about our sin. God judged them, brought them to ruin. He brought a king named Nebuchadnezzar, and then another king. And then another king, and an army after army, until that tiny nation of rebels fell, tearing everything down to the ground. By the way, they had no one to blame but themselves. The most mature thing you can ever determine in your life is to say, I've got no one to blame but myself for where I am and why I'm in a mess I am. Amen? Now, world politics. You know, throughout history, politics is a given. Politics always goes on. Empires constantly rose and they fell, like I was trying to show you there. The Assyrians and the Ninevites rose to power only to be conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians rose to power. Nebuchadnezzar became great and powerful, and then his grandson blew it. And while he was drunken in a drunken party, the Medes and the Persians came in and took over. You know, things go. They come. Say la vie. Economic powers were built and then broken, and never was this tiny nation of Israel a mover and shaker of the world. It was like, it was like the back lot on an old road that nobody cared about. It just happened to be on the pathway between the big empires and Egypt, and it just happened to be right along that path. Nobody cared what happened in Israel. And that was the world that Judah dwelt in, a world that was racing ahead and, and doing 
everything he could, independent of God. And there was a little country called Judah, but it was not supposed to stay that way. Israel's captivity, when you come to the book of Ezra, please go to Ezra now. You're going back before Psalms. We're going to go to Ezra. So you've got Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. So find Ezra. And in the book of Ezra, Israel's captivity was now over. <clears throat> now I know we've already started with Nehemiah, and you think, well, this is the beginning. No, and actually, we've got to go back, and we've got to see how Ezra records the real beginning with Israel coming back, and Judah specifically coming back to their homeland. Let me answer a, a question in your mind. You may say, what does Ezra, Nehemiah, Israel, Judah have to do with me? Romans chapter 12, uh, 15 verse 4 says, These things were written aforetime in the past for our learning. Because if there's anything you ought to do when you're reading your Bible, it is see yourself. So when you look at Israel and their rebellion and their stubbornness and their hard hearts, don't be so stupid as to think he's not reflecting you. That's a mirror. So we're going to see here in the book of Ezra, we're going to see something marvelous. Let's, um, uh, let's look at verses 1 and 2. And I want you, if you've got a biro, if you've got a pencil, if you've got a marker, I'm going to want you to circle or underline or mark one phrase here that is the whole point of this message. And if you get it, you'll be blessed. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the first year of, here's our king, Cyrus the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Here's your, here's your key. Underline these words. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. That he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith King Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me, he's commanded me, to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, we come to the part that exposes only what a Bible believer can see in history. Most of the world only saw Cyrus the king. They didn't see God in the hand of God. But listen, there was an unseen hand at work in Cyrus's heart. Do you see that? The Lord stirred up his heart. So let me tell you a little bit about King Cyrus. This is the very first year of his reign as king. He's not waiting until he's old and then thinks about God. He's not waiting until he's, he's got everything else, uh, his empire all under control, and he's, he's uh, um, uh, got his, his retirement set up, and he's got his family all organized, and he's got um, houses. You know what? The first year, God stirs his heart, and he acts, and he says, you know, I need to send those people back home and get them free. And something drops into his heart that says, I've got to do something for God. So he makes a public announcement, and it just shows that God's in control, even though he's the emperor of the then known world. Who's in charge of him? God. And what you're looking at is the promises of God at work. Go back now. I had you, if you're in Ezra, hold your place here, but well, you can leave it because we're going to go to a couple of scriptures. Isaiah, back to Isaiah chapter 44. Hope you brought your Bible this morning. That's what we are, Bible Baptist Church, by the way. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. <clears throat> now, in case you didn't know, 
Isaiah is written in 700 B.C. And good old King Cyrus is in 538 B.C. Almost 162, 162 years later. So 162 years earlier, watch Isaiah talk about a guy who's not even born yet and won't be born for 162 years. Look at verse 28, Isaiah 44, 28. Thus saith, that saith of Cyrus, he's my, what? This is God talking. He's my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even say unto Jerusalem, thou shalt be built. And to the temple, the foundation shall be laid. Isaiah is being told to write about a man who hasn't been born yet, that this man was going to say, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, and I'm going to do it. The fact that God named Cyrus 160 years earlier has led a lot of Bible critics to go, well, Isaiah, that's not possible. Isaiah can't know about Cyrus 150, 160 years later. Oh, really? Is it really that hard? You know, a little kid was sitting in Sunday school and learned about Jonah. He goes to school the next day, Monday. And the teacher's making fun of the Bible saying, because he just learned about Jonah. And the teacher said, you know, that people really believe that a whale swallowed Jonah. The little kid rose his hand. And he says, I know why. I, why, I, I know that God, I know, I know that the whale swallowed Jonah. And the teacher said, why? Because the Bible says so. Oh, well, so you just believe everything the Bible said. He said, yeah. And if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed a whale, I'd believe that too. Oh, that's very stupid. No, that's what a Bible believer does. My believer may look foolish. Now, we don't believe stupid things like Jonah swallowed a whale. But we do believe stupid things like whale swallowed Jonah. Okay? They're both stupid. Amen? They're both impossible. But God, who wrote that book, said 160 years before a man was born, that a man was going to be born, his name was going to be Cyrus, he was going to be a king, and he was going to rebuild Jerusalem. Wow. What else did that book have to say? You know, when it talks about the future and the Antichrist and uh, uh, the seven-year tribulation, boy, that excites me because I know it's coming. The promises of God. Let's go to uh, Jeremiah now. You're in Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. <clears throat> Jer I said Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 29. If I confuse you, then I've done my job, I guess. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, in verse 10. I'll read down to verse 14. It says this, For thus saith the Lord, that after how many years? After 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and will perform my good word against you. He's performed at this point. He's performing his bad word, which was Israel's and Judah is going to be destroyed. But I will perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Do you ever memorize this verse? Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. Who's he talking to? To the people who are being sent away, who are being taken captive, who are looking back and seeing their, their city being destroyed and being burned with fire. And the Lord says, I'm telling you, I have a plan. Amen? Next time you're looking into the abysmal abyss of disaster, look up and say, Lord, I hope you got a plan. Because <laughs> he does. 
verse 12. He goes on there, verse 11, he goes, to give you an expected end, you need to have the promises, you need to know them so that you know what to expect. Verse 12, then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and you shall seek me. Here's another verse to memorize. And you shall find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. You know the problem with most Christians? You know the problem with most people? They don't want God. They're not desperate to find Him. Uh, a, uh, a very important thing for every Christian in this room to decide is, you know, God, I need you. And you got you to stop playing church and, start, and, and stop thinking, well, you know, if I ever got in a car wreck or if I ever was pinned against a wall or if I uh, was ever at the bottom of a cliff, hanging on for life, or if I was on life support, then I'll cry out to God. That's almost too late. Would you agree? You'll find me when you seek for me with how much of your heart? All your heart. So in this thing, watch. God says, you know what? I'm putting you out of your city. I'm letting Jerusalem be destroyed. I'm sending you off into captivity so that you finally decide, I want to go home. I want to go home. Instead of the wayward son, the prodigal son, living high on the hog, and then when everything falls apart, being, being subsidized by the government and being taken care of by everybody, he hits rock bottom, and what does he decide? I want to go home. We need that today. We need some people who are desperate. Lord, I want to find you. And you promise me that I'll find you when I search for you with all my heart. Verse 14, And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from among the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into this place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. I'll bring you right back. That's cool. Now he's writing that 70 years before Ezra starts. Go to chapter 27. You're still in Jeremiah, chapter 27, verse 22. 27, 22. This, just in case you're, you don't believe it, look at what Jeremiah writes. Again, these are prophets, which means they can tell the future. Verse 22, they shall be carried to Babylon. Talking about people of Judah. And there shall they be until the day that I visit them, saith the Lord, then will I bring them up and restore them to this place. Go to Second Chronicles. Say, where's that? Well, it's, if, you find, if you go to Psalms, keep going left. You find Ezra, go one book before the book of Ezra, and you get to, I'm sorry, go back before Nehemiah, and you get to one book before Nehemiah. Oh, no, Ezra. I have to think. Right before Ezra is Second Chronicles. Stop it. Second Chronicles, just before Ezra. I'm sorry, Second Chronicles. If you think you're lost, think about my week, man. <laughs> Second Chronicles 36 and verse 20. Now, a chronicle just means a record. It's, a, it's like a, 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 um, a record of history. And it's recording Jewish history here in verse 20, 2 Chronicles 36, the last chapter of Chronicles, verse 20. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he, Nebuchadnezzar, away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons unto the reign of the kingdom of Persia. So we're going to come to Persia in a moment. Why were they taken away? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, 
until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath, or rest, to fulfill threescore and ten years, seventy years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of, prophet, uh, mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord, here's those words, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. What are we looking at? We're looking at the promises of God. In spite of whatever disaster and whatever problems I got myself into, God can get me out. Amen? You say, well, you know, I've already burned out my head on drugs. I've already ruined my relationship with my wife. I've already driven away my kids. I've already so messed up my testimony at work. I've already got so much stuff in my baggage and in my skeleton closet. Nobody want to know me. You know what? God does. And God loves you. And God can take a mess like you and me and can make them shine. God does it, not you, not a priest, not the water of baptism, not some holy communion. God can fix anybody. Amen. If you don't believe that, you're in the wrong church <laughs> because I need God. And the promises, what you need is a good dose of about a 50 promises out of that book and say, you know, Lord, I'm just going to trust you got a plan. I'm going to let you take me from A to B. And I can't wait to see what B is like. Amen. It, it focuses here on the stirring of a heart. You see it there, verse 22, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Now, you probably know how music can stir people. You know how anger can stir up people. You know how words can stir up people, Amen. I mean, I was watching a little kid on a, walking with their mom in the mall, and the music changed, and it turned into a kind of a really heavy rock beat, and a little kid's going like this. Stirred them up. You know, we know how to be stirred by a lot of different things. You know, God liked to stir up some people, too. God stirred a heart. This proves can God, God can work on anybody. Cyrus, this does not say that God saved Cyrus. Does it say that? No, he got his heart, though. He stirred his heart. He motivated his heart. He gripped his heart. He moved it and directed it. Amen. God can work on anybody. Ultimately, Cyrus, just like anybody else, has to make a decision, will I give my heart to the Lord? But God was knocking on his heart. Would you agree? Do you understand that? Thank God. You're never going to get saved without God first knocking. Amen. But God can't save you until you want to be. Amen. A stirring of a heart. He makes a proclamation. What do you mean like a proclamation? Well, I mean, how many of you know this one is? <laughs> you know what that is? That's the 1916 proclamation that proclaimed Ireland's independence from the United Kingdom. You know what? He proclaims, uh, Cyrus proclaims that the God of heaven made me what I am today. Gave me all these kingdoms. That's a, that's a great acknowledgement. He said, I am where I am because God's been good to me. And he said, and the same God has charged me with building a house or a temple in Jerusalem. You know, wouldn't it be awesome if our Tishak actually stood up and said, God put me here, and God wants me to do right. Amen. 
Wouldn't that be a great t-shirt? <clears throat> he makes a proclamation. Now, normally, kings and politicians only build their empires, their temples, their wealth. But this king's heart had been affected by three influences. You're in, go to the right, find Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 27. Just one book over to the right, Ezra chapter 7, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Wow, God influenced this king's heart to make things back right oh, a thousand kilometers away. Now, how did God affect Cyrus? Three ways. One, he used the word of God. Cyrus, Josephus says Cyrus was shown his name in the book of Isaiah. Because can you imagine, here's Gavin, you know, and I say Gavin, Gavin's sitting there and he's, 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 he works for Bill Gates or some big company, you know, or he's really important. We know he's not now. But anyway, he's really important, very powerful. And uh, uh, somebody goes up and says, you know, the Bible says Gavin is going to do such and such and such and such. And, and this was written about 200 years ago. Would that impress you? Say Gavin from McCroom. McCroom. Young Gavin from McCroom. Kid Gavin. I don't know. Anyway, I mean, that'd freak you out if you saw your name in a book written 160 years earlier or more. That would blow your mind, wouldn't it? So here's Cyrus, and the Word of God got his attention. You know, when, when I was 17 years old and I went to church, actually, before I even went to church uh, uh, of my own free will, I was dragged there a couple of times when I was a kid, but we never talked about God. We didn't, we didn't think He fit into our lives. But there was a woman talking to me and telling me the gospel and sharing with me scriptures. And you know what she said? She said, your name's in the Bible. <laughs> I went, no, no, it's not either. She said, come to church tomorrow and you'll find out. Because she didn't have a Bible with her at that time. She just had a gospel tract. And you know what? I found out my, my name's in the Bible. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know what all means? All. You know what that means? For Craig has sinned against the glory of God. My name's in the Bible. How about Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. The wages of all sin, that means my sin too. My name's right in that book. When you show me that, it says my sin is going to end in my death and I'll be eternally separated from God in hell. All of a sudden, I sit up. My name's in that book. It's not written about just some people over in the Far East. It's not written about some people over in another country somewhere. It's written about me, a sinner. You know, I found out my name was also in the book. Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My, my name fits in whosoever. Every name fits in whosoever. My name's in the book. You know, the Bible, have a, if you're ever trying to talk to somebody about the Lord, open the Bible. Because the word will work. Your wisdom won't go very far, and your, your answering your questions won't go very far, but the book will win them. Second thing that affected Cyrus was the Spirit of God. How we need God's Holy Spirit to work in our nation today. We don't need more politicians. We don't need more proclamations. We don't need more media influence. We need the Spirit of God to move. Would you agree? 
Without the Spirit of God, no one would sense the weight of their sin. Without the Holy Spirit of God, no one would fear hell. I can talk about hell all day long to somebody and tell them, you're going there, but the Holy Spirit of God needs to grip their heart and says, He's right. Without the Holy Spirit of God combined with the Word of God, no one would know that they could be saved if they would only believe. We need the Spirit of God in Ireland today at work. Spirit of God got a hold of Cyrus. And then the prayer of God's people got a hold of Cyrus. You know, almost the entire book of Jeremiah is one man pleading with God, God, no. God, it's your people. God, don't let them go this way. God, don't let them be so stupid and so stubborn and so hard-hearted. God, save your nation. Save your people. And he prays through the whole book of Jeremiah. God, please don't let this happen as he watched Nebuchadnezzar surround that city and for years after years knocking and knocking at the walls before they crumbled and then watch the people being carried away as slaves in chains and in ropes and being whipped and being slaughtered by the tens of thousands. There he was watching that thing, pleading with God, God, don't do this. And the Lord's saying, it's okay, I'm going to bring them back. Lord, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Don't worry. I will bring them back. You find another man later on, his name's Daniel. You find a whole chapter there in Daniel chapter 9. As Daniel begins to get on his face and he says, Lord, I read Jeremiah and I read how you promised him that you would bring your people back. But we're still here. Are you going to still do it? He began to pray and he began to plead. He began to confess and he said, God, don't abandon us. You know what God said? Amen. I ain't going to abandon you. It's because of the prayers of God's people, trusting the promises of God. He touches the heart of a wicked king named Cyrus. Don't you tell me your prayers don't matter. Don't you miss Wednesday night prayer meeting because Wednesday night is where the power is. And if there are two or three, Jesus says, I'll be there too. Amen. Now there ought to be 40 or 50. (laughs) Amen. But there's power in that prayer. And God's people need to get to the place where we say, Lord, we need the Spirit of God. And we need to preach the Word of God. But we've got to have the prayers of God's people so we're in tune, so we're in the same, we're on the same channel, we're in the same wavelength, we're going the same way as the, as, as the Spirit of God. Now, which would you rather? Exodus 14, 8 says, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You want God to do that to you? You say, God wouldn't do that. You're a fool. Worst thing you can ever do is to say, well, God, I'll put you off, because the more you put them off, the harder it is for you to get right. Exodus 14, 8 says, here comes Moses, and Moses stands before Pharaoh, and with greatest respect says, you need to let, you need to let Israel go. And Pharaoh says, I think I'm going to let him go. Go back to your cave, Moses. All of a sudden, trouble comes in. God's judgment begins, and the pressure comes on, Mo- on, on Pharaoh. And Moses walks back in and says, you're going to let him go? Pharaoh says, you're trying to put pressure on me? <laughs> and Moses says, heavy, heavy is going to be on your head unless you start letting God's people go home and be free. And Pharaoh begins to fight, and he says, I will not let him go. I do not know your Lord, and I do not care. And as every time he resisted the work of the Holy Spirit of God, Pharaoh's heart got harder and harder. You really want to do that? Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turneth it whithersoever he will. Which one do you want? One that hardens it or guides it and uses it? Go back, go to Ezra chapter 1, verse 3 now. 
Ezra 1 and verse 3. There's a call to return. Verse 3 and 4. Who is there among you of all his, of all God's people? His God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem. Remember, what kind of state was Jerusalem in? Ruin. Rubble. It was worthless. Let him go back to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, Judah, and build the house of the Lord, we'd say the temple of God, of Israel. And look what he says. He is the God which is in heaven, which is in Jerusalem, sorry. Verse 4, And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, wherever you live, let the men of his place help the men going back with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, God talks to his people. You know, I'm not on television talking to anybody out there and trying to get people in TV land. I'm talking to you. Talking to God's people. God calls us. God talks to us. I wish God would talk to Leo Varadkar. Maybe I need to pray more for him. Would you agree? Maybe I need to send him a track or two. Maybe I need to write him a letter saying, please, Dr. Leo, would you not violate your Hippocratic Oath? And would you consider not only is that unborn child a, a living human being, but would you consider it has a soul that is eternal, just as eternal as your soul, and you've got to be born again. Shouldn't I do that? Yep. Right now, I'm, not, I'm talking to you. And God calls his people. You know, nobody cared about that pile of rubble over there in Jerusalem, except God's people. And nobody's going to care about this place. I mean, people come and people go, but we care about it. We care about our Sundays, amen? We care about our little insignificant lives when they're in God's hand. These Hebrews, they said, we get to go home. <laughs> and it was directed at the people that were quite settled in their life in Persia. You know, it was kind of risky. It was actually inconvenient to ask somebody to abandon their life. They were doing pretty well. They had, a, they had retirement plans. They had, they had uh, houses. They had raised families. They had generations of families. They were accumulating wealth. They had started shops and businesses. Things were going pretty good in Persia. And yet here they were being asked to leave all those familiar sound surroundings and venture across a thousand kilometers of deserts go back to a land decimated by war. These were not cities filled with houses for them to live in. No, these, there were no houses. There was nothing there but rubble. And there were also enemies there. Many of them had been born to captivity, and all they ever knew was Babylon. They never knew anything about home, Israel. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a burden to me. A lot of you have never seen what Christianity looks like. You've never seen what revival looks like. You've never seen what it's like to see grown men cry out for God to save them. And for grown men to say, I was wrong. You've never seen where families have come together and gotten right and wayward sons and wayward daughters have miraculously come through the back door of the church and come and, and fell on the necks of their parents. You haven't seen that. You ought to ask God to see it. You ought to ask God to say, Lord, Nobody else is going to care for my family, but I'm going to. Nobody else is going to care for a church just full of people. We've got nothing. We don't have 
wealth and we don't have power, we don't have TV programs, we don't have great things to brag about, but we ought to care about what we have here in Christ. Here, don't be so settled in this world that you can't just up and go wherever God calls you. To do whatever God calls you to do. It's all sacrifice. God's people have become too settled. It's time for them to move. God didn't just ask, by the way. He says he called. It's like when mom calls for dinner. Dinner's ready. You know what that means? Now. <laughs> Amen? Now, Sarah, Sarah, our daughter Sarah, she's not here, so I can talk about her. Sarah says, two minutes, which means 26 minutes later. But you know, when you call for dinner, it's not like, yeah, 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 whenever you want to come down. No, 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 mama's slave for the last hour. Don't you dare be one minute late. Amen? And when God calls, don't you dare delay. Amen? It's a command. God challenged them. He pleaded with them. He summoned them to appeal, and he appealed to them to get up and get going to uproot everything, move a thousand kilometers away, to risk everything they had gained and accumulated and built in Babylon and Persia and leave it all behind, to go completely by faith, just trust in God's promises that this was the time and this was right. Reminds me when Jesus came along. You ever read there, Jesus came along? And it says, Matthew, if you remember, Matthew sat at the receipt of custom. You know what that means? He was making money hand over fist as people paid their taxes. You see, when they paid taxes, he got a cut on the top. He'd find out, what's your name? I said, I gotta come up with that. Dan Eberly, I'll just use his name here. Dan Ben Eberly, <laughs> anyway, Dan Eberly. <laughs> and on there, he'd say he owes the Roman government, he owes uh, 6,000 euros for the year. You owe eight. <laughs> that was what he got to do. Matthew could make up anything. He says, you look like you got some money. It's 8,500 you owe. And he could make up anything he wanted for you to pay. And there were two soldiers at least beside him who looked down on you and says, you go pay. <laughs> and you had to pay. And Matthew's there making money hand over fist. And guess who passes by? Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, Matthew, follow me. You know what Matthew did? It says he left all. And he followed him. Yeah. Amen. So Jesus didn't say, would you like to? <laughs> he says, follow me. He called him. Amen. You know, these, uh, these Jews were called to return to three things. One was to return to the will of God. God's will was not that they lived in the world. God's will was not that they, they took on the culture of the world. No Christian should be painting their hair. No Christian should be tattooing their body that was given to them by God. No Christian should be piercing themselves and living out looking like they're a pincushion. Amen. Some of you are afraid to say amen on that. No Christian should be shaving their head and walking around with a mohawk or, a, or all of these stupid things that say, I want to look like the world. Look like Jesus Christ, man. You know what Jesus Christ looked like? Nobody. Not, dragging, not, not attracting attention to anybody. He had no former comeliness, comeliness that we should desire to be like him. But it's inside that looked awesome. I just want to be like him. I don't want to, 
I mean, you get to the 60s, everybody said, I, I have long hair so I can look like Jesus. Jesus didn't look like that. Drug dealers looked like that. Dope heads looked like that. Uh, ACDC looked like that. But Jesus didn't look like that. What am I doing? I'm on my soapbox this morning. The will of God is for you to leave all that influence and all that stuff. Well, I've got to wear my really tight pants. Yeah. Everybody notice? I can't breathe. <laughs> you know, I make fun of that because I was there. Man, and my friends wore bell bottoms. Remember the pants that went out like a foot and a half on each side? I had to have them. Some kids started wearing the psychedelic tie-dye shirts. Remember those stupid things? I had to have them. My mom was cutting my hair with a bowl. I was crying every time. I begged my mom, please let me help me grow my hair. So I let it grow. Some of you got shorter hair than I did. And I had it all the way down to here. What was I doing? Trying to be like them. And then when I got saved, and I started going to church, and I heard that choir sing, and I said, I, well, I can't sing, but I want to sing. Can I join the choir? My preacher looked at me and says, get a haircut. <laughs> and you know what? I didn't look at him and go, how short? I went to the butcher, I was going to say, <laughs> to the barber. <laughs> and I sat down in that chair. Let me borrow this chair there. And I sat down in that chair, shaking like a leaf. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, this is going to be fun. He said, how much do you want off? I said, make me look like a man. Exactly what I said. Amen. I got out of the will of the world, and out of the will of my friends, and out of the will of myself, and I said, Lord, <clears throat> whatever it takes, I just, I just, I, I, I don't care if I'm different now. I'm not asking you to be weird. You're going to be weird. I'm not asking you to be looking like you're stupid. But man, quit following the world and say, Lord, I just, I, 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 I don't want to attract attention to me. I want to direct attention to you. The will of God. God's people belonged in the will of God. Listen to Acts 5. When they had brought them, the apostles, they set him before the council, and the high priest asked him, say, Did not we straightly command, straightly command you that you should not teach in this, in this name, in Jesus' name? Behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This is after the crucifixion. And then Peter and the other apostles answered in unison and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. That'd be a good thing. They were called. Back to the will of God. They were called to the work of God. You know, God sometimes says, I've got a job for you to do. And it was not going to be easy. Oh, I can't do it, pastor. You dummy, of course you can't do it. You're going to need others to help you. You're going to need God to help you. You just need to get going. You just need to say, it's a work that i got to do, and I want to stay at the work. No matter how long it takes, I just want to do something for God. You look at your wife, you look at your kids, you look at that rubble, and you got to quit going. It's impossible. I just can't put up with her. It's impossible. I'm not going to live with that man. It's impossible. I'm not going to put up with my parents. It's impossible. I'm not doing that job anymore. It's impossible. I can't read the king's English. It's impossible. Quit it. You know what you need to do? God helping me. I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do. Amen. To the work of God. God then called them to the worship of God. The whole point of them going back so they could rebuild that temple. We forget about this part most often. 
Our 21st century human being has so little concern for worship. You know, I find that people feel that if they, if they do anything, if they come to church once a year, they think, God, you ought to be happy. At least I came. And that if God gets any of our time, any of our worship, then he should just be grateful. Well, shame on all of us. That our worship is the last thing we care to focus on. Oh, yeah, you got a leaky roof. You'll focus on that, won't you? Your car won't start. Everything else stops. you got to get that car going, amen? But what about our lack of time with God? What happened to that? <clears throat> Let's see what God did next. Look in verse 5. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah, and Benjamin and the priests and Levites and all them whose spirit God had raised up to go. Wait a minute. I thought Cyrus's spirit was raised up. Oh, that wasn't the end. All them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. He goes on, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away unto Babylon and came again to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone unto his city, which came with, and this is a very important name you need to remember, Zerubbabel. I'll talk about him in just a second. Jeshua, Nehemiah, How did, you know who that is? Hello? Sariah, Realiah, and who's the next guy? Mordecai. Mordecai was the uh, older cousin of a younger lady named Hadassah who ends up being called Esther, the book of Esther. Look who God raises up. You know, the truth is, people responded. You know how many? Look in chapter 2, verse 64. <clears throat> Chapter 2, just go to verse 64. The number of people who responded to the king's call. Verse 64, the whole congregation together was 40 and 2, say it with me, 1,303 score. That's a lot of people. Amen. God had gripped some leaders' hearts, some chief men. You say, well, I'm too busy. I'm too important. I can't believe that. Zerubbabel was called here. Here was Zerubbabel, was the great leader that was going to lead these people back. And Nehemiah, you see Mordecai there. God affected religious men, of which Ezra was one of them. God affected and gripped the hearts of everyone. Now, everyone who turned up, not everybody went, but a whole lot of people did. God... Uh, Attracted loads of workers, too, by the way. So I'm not called to be a pastor. You don't have to be called to be a pastor. You are called to work. Amen. I appreciate everybody who volunteers and helps out with the tea on Sunday morning. Amen. I appreciate people who get here early. Did I say that? Who get here early to help set up and put hymnals out and make sure everything's ready for when you show up at 11. Let that sink in for a minute. You know, God attracts and God's spirit ought to grip your heart and say, you know what, I am slapping Jesus Christ in the face when I come in late every single Sunday. God calls us to work. And you say, well, the kids don't get ready. My wife doesn't get ready. It's probably you. God attracted loads of workers. 42,000 of them were going to go back who were masons and carpenters and bricklayers and hole diggers. 
Amen. Well, I, I, if you want me to do something, Pastor, I'll do it. God wants you to do something, to be here, to pray, to, 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 to help teach, to, to do something, to go soul winning, to help clean. I don't care what it is. God raised up families. By the way, these are not just individuals that God's calling. God calls families. Bring your kids along. Amen. Say, well, my kids are bored. Let them be bored. You know, if you raise them on that stupid iPad, you raise them on uh, uh, Teletubbies and uh, SpongeBob, what is he, SquarePants? <laughs> oh, why did I have to bring up that thought? Anyway, if you raise them on that, don't you look for them to live for God later in life. Those things aren't sin. But if that's what you're raising them on, and they look at the Bible, they go, that's boring. Bring them to church. Bring them to Sunday school. Let them sit by you. Let them hear the preaching of the Word of God because God wants to raise up families, godly wives and moms and dads and husbands and teenagers. And then there are some people who can't go. This is a good missions message. Not everybody can go to a foreign field. Not everybody can go to a different country or a different city even. But you know, if somebody's going, you ought to help them. We tear each other down too much. I don't know about so-and-so. And pray for them. That's why we got nine missionary families we pray for and we send support to to encourage them to keep them going. Ezra chapter 1 goes on about how people started giving. They encouraged one another. They made sure that all of these 42,000 had the, the, the finances, they had the food that they could make that 1,000-kilometer journey that they could do. You know, God was showing himself pretty awesome, saying, you know, I can do this. When, when everything else is against them. Let me finish up. A lot of people are still in captivity. Maybe even you. Your parents warned you. They sat you down and says, don't you go with those friends. And you didn't listen. This preacher's warned you week after week and you get tired of hearing me warn you about things. And yet there you are, in bondage, in depression, stuck in pornography. You're in bondage to anger. You're in bondage to prescription drugs. That's what sin does. You can't blame your mother. You can't blame uh, Sigmund Freud. You can't blame your counselor. Blame you. Maybe it hadn't affected you yet. Maybe you're just a young, good-looking kid like Dean. Not a problem in the world. Well, God's judgment is not instant like lightning. You listening, Dean? Okay. You and I better be very thankful for his patience. People's sins, their superstitions, their lying, their thieving, their fornication, their adultery will be judged. Hebrews, 10, 5, uh, Hebrews 13, 5 says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed is undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, what's the next three words say? God will judge. Say, Boy, you're angry today. No, I'm not. I'm just passionate trying to get a point across from a very unfamiliar book. Those people have no idea about Ezra, much less Nehemiah. Bible history is like, and I'm pleading with God all week. I'm saying, Lord, are you sure? As I read this thing, my heart just broke, and I said, Lord, please help us to want to rebuild some things. Help us to not be a part of the destructive force anymore. Help us not to live ruined anymore. Help us to see that maybe... Maybe God's just being good to me and hadn't exposed me, hadn't broken me yet. 
Boy, I hope you don't have to wait until that happens. World politics and all the goings-on in the world just don't matter. Everybody loves talking about politics, don't they? But you know what the Bible even does? We just laugh and laugh. <laughs> I hear people screaming about Trump. I hear people speaking about Theresa May. And they're all going, oh, this is the end of the world. And you know what a Christian does? We laugh. <laughs> they have no idea. Trump's not the problem. Amen. Putin's not the problem. Amen. You know who's holding this whole world together? Jesus Christ. You know what a Bible believer does? I don't worry about Trump, his finger on the bigger button. Some of you need to know what tweets are going on anyway. <laughs> he says, my button's bigger than Kim Il-jung Kook, whatever his name is over there in North Korea. My button's big. And Christians, are, not Christians, but people are going, ah, ah. and you know what Christians do? We laugh and laugh and laugh. Because I've read the book. I know how it's going to work out. Politics. What matters is what is God doing? The stirring of a heart, that's what matters. Is anything beating inside of there? Somebody put up a stethoscope to your heart, would they even hear it? Would they even know that you're alive? Or are you just sitting there nearly dead from day after day after day? Your wife looks at you and wonders, is, does he ever pray? Does he ever walk with God? Does he ever read his Bible? Does he ever live for God? Does he ever hand out a track? You're, you, you look at your wife and you go, does she ever, ever stop complaining? Does she ever, ever, ever just look to God? Hey, listen. God needs to stir our hearts. God needs to grip our hearts. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Those are amazing words. Those are encouraging words. 1 Samuel 10, 26 says, Saul went home to Gibeah, King Saul, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts got it touched. Acts 16, 14, and a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, she heard us, Paul's been preaching, whose heart the Lord opened. She attended on other things which are spoken of by Paul and believed. You know, it's, I just want God to work. I could care less if my words make sense to any of you. Actually, I do care. But I know I cannot fix you. I just want God's Spirit to work. I mean, we need the stirring of a heart. And is God doing anything in you this morning? What am I asking? Has the, has the Word of God stirred your heart? Has the Spirit of God ever stirred your heart? Is it stirring it today? I would wager at least one person has been praying for every person in this room by name. I bet your mom prayed for you. I bet your grandmother prayed for you. I wish you knew how much this preacher prays for you. God's people have been praying. <clears throat> now, if, if nothing's stirring you this morning, then I'm not going to bother you. But if he is stirring you, then glory to God. That means you're alive. <laughs> some souls can be saved, some families can be rebuilt, some broken lives can be restored, and Satan can be trashed. Amen. That's what this book is for. It's called The Good News. Amen. If God has touched your heart, then we can get down to the business of worshiping God. The whole purpose of them going back to Israel, going back to Judah, was to start over and rebuild that altar and rebuild that temple and say, Lord, we need to put you first. Before even our own families, before even our own homes, before the walls had to be built, we needed to have our hearts 
right with you. And that's what they were doing. We'll talk about that again. Which would you rather? For the Lord to harden your proud heart? You know, if you walk out of here the same way as you walked in, you're going to be scared to death because it only gets harder and harder to get right. Every time you come to church and you just sit there and you don't make a decision for God, it'll get harder and harder for you to ever make a decision for God. Wouldn't you rather God turn your heart towards Him and soften it like He did Cyrus's? That's what repentance is. God's call this morning is to return to three things. One, to the will of God according to the Bible. You know what His will is? For you to be like Jesus. He's not asking you to go to move to Israel. He's asking you, whatever it costs, for you to say, Lord, I want to be more like you. I just want to follow Jesus. I want to be like your son. I want to be different. I don't care if I'm different than the world. I don't care if the world ignores me for the rest of my life, makes fun of me, anything. I just want to be like Jesus. Amen. That's the will of God, the work of God. God calls you whatever it is. If you're ever going to start living for God, guess what? It'll be some of the hardest thing you'll ever do. You say, it's hard to read the Bible, Pastor. Hello. That's the work of God. That I'd let this chip away at this. I'd let this change me. It's hard work. I've been called to work. You look at your family and you see things going wrong. It's time to go to work. We've been called to work. You say, well, I'm praying, Pastor. Yeah, but are you going and talking to them? Are you doing what God needs you to do? Are you letting God change you to, so that He can change them? It's a work. And third, to the worship of God. To the worship of God. I'm going to be real clean, clear. Don't forget about this part. <clears throat> a lot of us think worship is just prayer. But worship is praise and thankfulness for every gift, every breath, every act of kindness God has showed you when He should have killed you. That's worship. The very lifestyle of just walking with God through the day, enjoying His presence throughout every minute of every day. We've been called to worship. I mean, you ought to go out of here, and this afternoon you ought to be able to just praise God. You ought to just walk with Him. You ought to spend time with Him like you ought to spend time with your wife, like you ought to spend time with your kids. Spend time with Him. Do you even know the Lord Jesus? Romans chapter 10. Go to Romans chapter 10. We're through here in Ezra. Romans chapter 10. Do you even know? Oh, I know all about the Lord. You may know Him here, but you know more people are in hell because of 12 inches. More people are in hell because of one stinking foot. Because they don't know Him here. Romans chapter 10, verse 8 says this. But what saith it? <clears throat> the word is nigh thee. The word of God is right near you, even in thy mouth. You can quote it, and in thine heart. That is the word of faith with which, which we preach. Verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. He's not just Jesus, he's what? He's the Lord Jesus. And shalt believe where? In thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him, not going to be the most intelligent person, not going to be the wealthiest person, but you know one of the signs that you're saved? You're not ashamed. Verse 12, for there's no difference between 
Jew, the Jews, remember? Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah, all the Jews. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek, Gentile like you and me. But the same Lord overall is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, next three words, shall be saved. You know, do you even know the Lord? He knows you. And he still loves you. He died to save you from the coming wrath. The trouble that you stored up against your life is going to one day be required of you and you'll never be able to pay it off. So he paid it. All you have to do is cry out to him and ask him, please save a wretch like me. And he will. Father, would you bless these thoughts to your people? Kind of a deep message, kind of a time where we've had to go through history. And, but you know what? Things haven't changed. Still going through the same cycles, aren't we, Lord? If only we'd get tired of it. And we'd look to the promises of God and say, you'd really rather save than judge. You must judge sin. But you'd rather save. There's somebody in this room, plenty of people in this room, who know all about God and Jesus, the Bible, Mary, Joseph, John the Baptist, they know about all that in their head. It's never affected their heart, never convicted them of sin. Holy Spirit's never been able to show them that they are lost. Maybe today you will show them. Would you please, would you, would you please make some people guilty before you instead of self-righteous? Break them down like you did me. It did so many of us. Don't let them go out of here the same as they came in. Let them fear being like Pharaoh. Cry out, God, please get my heart. I don't have to understand you, but I do need you. I don't have to have all my questions answered, but I do have to have you. And I think you need my heart. So please have it. And have my sin and have my destiny. Lord, I prayed that simple prayer. 37 years ago, not knowing what to say, no fancy words. I just cried out and said, Lord, please save me. According to the Bible, you do. I've been saved 37 years, never looked back, never, never regretted, never questioned, all because I just trusted the promises of God. You can trust it today too, dear friend. And Christian, let's quit living in Babylon and Persia. We may live in this world, but let's get back to the will of God, the work of God, and the worship of God. And we'll stand out. We'll look different, but we'll, we'll be home. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.